because the Bible should function some, somehow like John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God, you know, there he is, but always pointing to Jesus mm. um, or functioning like the star of Bethlehem at the Christmas story that led the Magi to Jesus. But in the end, they don't then focus on the star anymore. It has its place. It has its role, lead you to Jesus, but then you fall in love with Jesus. Mm. And that's, that's the role of the Bible in our lives. Otherwise, um, the, you can have a pretty violent and detached faith. And you can notice the, the danger signs of this potentially happening when people talk about the Bible the way we should talk about Jesus. Mm. They talk about the Bible as the Word of God, except in the Bible, most of the time the Word of God is used. It means just the message that God has for you, whatever mm. message He has for you. Like the way I might say to you, hey, Glenn, can I have a word with you? The Word is whatever message I have. I want to talk to you about it. And so God's Word to us in, in the New Covenant is the Gospel, which is the message of Jesus. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and uh, welcome, 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 welcome. It's good to see you here. Uh, this is episode number 127, and it's actually our very last series for the 2020 year. And uh, we're calling this series Good News for All People. And uh, we're kicking it off today with my friend Bruxy Cavey, who is a uh, pastor in Canada at a church called The Meeting House. He's going to tell us all about the church uh, in the beginning of the episode. But let's back up real quick. Uh, good news for all people. Obviously, those are the the words of the angels out in the fields pronouncing uh, or announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. There's a, a good good news of great joy for all the people. And I really wanted this series to, to be some good news at the end of a year of a lot of bad news. Uh, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know where you are in your faith. I don't know what 2020 has been like for you. But I know a lot of people have experienced a lot of grief this year, a lot of heaviness, a lot of loss, maybe a loss of health, loss of a loved one, loss of life, loss of income, loss of a job, loss of a sense of normality um, in, in your life. And a lot of times the, the gospel, and this is true, I think, in a lot of cases in the North American evangelical world, the good news that's supposed to be for all people has become good news for some people who believe the right things, good news for some people who vote the right way, good news for some people who align with the right doctrines and theologies, and really bad news for a lot of people who don't believe the right way, who haven't said the sinner's prayer, who don't align with the right theologies, who don't vote the right way. 
And I just wanted to say off the bat that that's a load of crap. Uh, when we take a message that the angels announced is for all people, is good news for everybody, and we whittle it down to being good news for just a select few who get to go to heaven when they die and bad news for the rest who go to hell, that's just not right. I mean, what, what a way to manipulate the gospel to be something that it never was meant to be. And it really saddens me when I, when I talk to people who come across the podcast, especially in our, our Facebook group that we have, people who might email me on the side and kind of tell me their story of growing up in a church where they were made to feel like God would love them if, that the good news was good news for them if, if they did this, if they believed that, uh, the threats of, of hell, the threats of judgment, the threats of eternal torture, all these different things. Um, being shamed and outcast because they were different, they thought different, believed different because they were gay, whatever. And they felt like the good news wasn't for them. And like I said before, in a, in a year that's been really hard, I wanted to kind of focus back in on what the good news really is. And so I'm bringing on these four voices. Today we have Bruxy. Um, he's going to come on and talk to us about good news. Uh, next week we have John Dominic Crossan, who's going to talk to us about the kind of the, the background, the context of the Christmas story, and then talk to us about his perspective on good news. Uh, then we have David Hayward, the naked pastor, coming on. He's going to talk to us about the good news. And then the Monday after Christmas, we're going to close it out with Alexander John Shia, who's going to talk to us about uh, the 13 days of Christmas, the time uh, after Christmas, before Epiphany in January, what all of that means. And he's going to give us his perspective on the good news. And, and my hope is that as you end this year and you cross over into 2021, and God only knows what awaits us on the other side, uh, but that you can close out this year and ride a wave of good news, of goodness, of joy uh, that is for all people into 2021. So, that's what this series is about, and uh, I'm excited to get it rolling with you here in just a few minutes. Uh, a couple of things real quick. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this has encouraged you, uh, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, head over there, check it out. There's different tiers, anywhere from $3 a month up to $20 a month. Every tier gets its own reward. Uh, the Heretic Shop is a place to go and buy some t-shirts, some hoodies, some hats, different things like that. Uh, I will tell you there are some new some new hoodie designs up there. Uh, it's fall or winter, whatever it is, whenever you're going to be listening to this, and uh, it's cold. I don't know about you, but here in North Carolina, we've had some the temperatures get down into the 20s. Now, I grew up in New Jersey, and so that's like nothing for me, but we've been down here for three years now, so my body kind of likes the warmer weather more than the cold. And so uh, it's been cold. So there are some new hoodies there. Uh, head over there, check them out. Uh, I'll put the link to that and Patreon in the show notes. Uh, special music today is from my friend Will Rutherford. He's got some really good tunes. Uh, if you head over to iTunes, you head over to Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you listen to your music, Apple Music, all the places, uh, check it out. Will Rutherford, I'll put some of his music 
uh, in this episode for you to check out. Uh, really cool guy doing great things in the world with his gifts and his talents. So look him up. He's on Facebook as well, Instagram, uh, Will Rutherford. So all of that to say, uh, as I said before, this is episode number 127. It's part number one of our series, Good News for All People. And it's my conversation with Bruxy Cavey. So let's roll the tape. Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're sitting down with my friend Bruxy Cavey, who is pastor of a church called the Meeting House and the author of some books such as Reunion and The End of Religion. So, uh, Bruxy, my friend, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk to you. Glenn, thanks for having me. It's a real privilege. Thank you. So, first off, to get us rolling, uh, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, especially for people who maybe aren't familiar with you and your work. Uh, who are you? What do you do? What, what makes you tick? Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, besides being the guy with the funny name, I mean, who, who names their kid Bruxy, right? Right. <laughs> um, I can't believe my parents. That's a, that's a childhood name that stuck. But um, I, uh, I'm the pastor of a church, and which is really funny for me. Sometimes I actually wake up in the night and I think, I'm a pastor, and I get the giggles. Like, it's a weird thing. It's living the life I never thought I would live. <laughs> I'm one of those people who grew up, and the more I learned about Jesus, the more I, I felt a warmth toward Jesus. And yet, mm-hmm. the, my relationship with the church wasn't always positive. I don't know if you ever had a friend who was like you hung out with and you really liked, but then your friend started dating someone that you didn't think was good for them and you didn't get along with. And then you had to make a choice. Like either I talk my friend out of dating them, or if I want to hang out with my friend, I'm going to have to get to like this person that they're hanging out with, you know, because it comes a package deal now and it gets really awkward. And man, I felt that way about Jesus and the church, you know, which the Bible calls the the bride of Christ. So I, I thought, Jesus, I love you, but this chick you chose to marry, man. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's, off, she's off there, right? <laughs> off the charts. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, like, dude, you got to make better choices, right? And <laughs> and then I, over time, I realized, okay, as I grew up, I realized, look, that includes me. Like, I'm I'm the bride of Christ, and yeah. I've got my issues too. Mm. And rather than just sit in the seat of judgment my whole life, which is not good for anyone, ultimately, it's not psychologically, psychically, spiritually good for us to just sit in the seat of judgment. It makes us feel good temporarily. Mm. But we rise above, above it all and we look down on. And um, I realized that, no, if I want to be close to Jesus, I've also got to have some humility and admit that I'm, I'm part of the problem to which he is the solution. I'm not just the innocent bystander. And mm. So I appreciate that the church is full of misfits and people who don't fit in other places and who have their issues. And I'm one of them. I got my issues. And, um, but I'll tell you, I never really thought I would grow up and be a pastor. It was other people who saw that in me and said, well, you love Jesus and you love people. And so you like get to be a spiritual dating service and just introduce them <laughs> to each other. So right. um, uh, this church asked me to consider coming, being a pastor. And I thought that's a pretty wild thing, but I'll, I'll, um, if they think they see that in me, then I'll give it a shot. And so 
Uh, I was pastor of another church for five years. That was great. Now I'm pastor of the Meeting House for over 20 years. And um, we really decided at the Meeting House, we wanted to have a spiritually safe place for for people who are just spiritually curious or mm. deconstructing or reconstructing their faith or even just starting from ground zero and saying, I'm not even sure what I believe, but I want to start to explore. We want to give them a safe place to ask questions. So questions are a big part of our indigenous language. Mm. We we encourage question asking. We think there's a real beauty in that and we shouldn't be threatened by it. Um, so even in our Sunday teaching, we try and bake most Sundays some Q&A time right into the teaching. Just it's that kind of wild X factor in the teaching. We don't know what people are going to ask, but it can be it can be exciting just to say we're open, we're vulnerable. We might not always have all the right answers, but we do want to say it's okay to ask questions. Mm. I think that's so important because there's so, in my experience growing up, like so many of the churches I was involved in, as soon as a question is asked, the alarms go off, you know, yeah. call, call the elder yeah. board, this person's going off the rails or whatever. So I think the fact that you can cultivate an environment where questions are welcome, I think that's, that's powerful. Yeah, it feels like a, just a beautiful way of being open and honest to me. So, and, and I, I appreciate it. I appreciate a lot of people who come to the meeting house will say that's one of the first things they heard that told them this would be a welcoming place is that mm. we love questions. Yeah, I've had a lot of people ask me like, do you have any place I can, you can direct me online where I can kind of listen to sermons or kind of be part of some sort of online community where I can you know, be, be welcomed with my, with my stuff and my questions. And I, I've been yeah. pointing people to your website and, and uh, your uh, cool. stuff because I think it's really, it's really important work. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Glenn. That's really encouraging feedback. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So for our listeners, uh, we're recording this episode in October, uh, but it's going to drop as part of our Christmas series in December. So Bruxy and I are sitting here trying to get ourselves into the Christmas spirit uh, before Halloween has even arrived. But uh, Bruxy, I thought you would be a really a really good person to bring onto the show for this series. Uh, it's going to be called Good News for All People um, mm-hmm. because, I don't know, it seems for me that Christianity, especially in the West, has kind of become maybe bad news for most people and good news for, for a few. And that's something that really came to bother me over the last few years, which is a large part of why I wanted to start this podcast. And uh, you have this line in your book, uh, Reunion, that really speaks to this. So I wanted to read it, if you don't mind and ask you yeah, a, a sure. question about it. So I read this line, and I thought this is what made me think, oh, I got to get this guy on the podcast for this series. But <laughs> you said this, any conversation about the gospel should be accompanied by a positive emotional atmosphere, one that's filled with joy and hope for everyone. So yeah. maybe talk to me about this in light of that first Christmas where the angel loudly declares that through Jesus, there's going to be good news that will cause great joy for all people. Uh, good news that brings joy, brings hope. Maybe like riff on that a little bit, if you would. You know, the title of this series obviously echoes the angel's words, but what does that announcement mean to you? All right. Yeah, very cool. Thanks. It comes from Luke 2.10, Luke mm-hmm. chapter 2, verse 10, where the angel says uh, to the shepherds, um, do not be afraid. I love that. That's usually the opening line of any angel. And I suppose mm-hmm. that a supernatural appearance, um, you know, of a heavenly being is going to initially cause uh, someone to be afraid or startled. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. But that be- the beauty of that uh, has more than just calming the immediate nerves. It's really mm-hmm. a disposition of the good news. Do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. I think that's the starting point of the announcement of Jesus, of conversation about Jesus, of, of talking about Jesus is whatever... Uh, whatever attitude you have assumed God has towards you, whatever picture of God you have, uh, whatever um, has led you towards anxiety, fear, 
when thinking that God is coming. You know, there, there was this um, atheist bus campaign in, this, in uh, the UK, and uh, that was years ago. And I think it, it said, there's probably no God, no God so mm. enjoy your life. And I thought, it's really interesting that in order to get to, you can enjoy your life, the premise of that has to be, there's probably no God. Mm. Um, that, that, that was what was a pace on the side of buses. And I thought, um, what is it about the absence of God that frees people to feel joy? Well, that says to me that the presence of God is not the God that Jesus was talking about. Mm. Um, because the, the initial impulse connected with the announcement of Jesus is, do not be afraid. For I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That's, so it's not only, don't be afraid, get rid of that anxiety, because if that anxiety is not rooted in reality, the reality of who God actually is. It's not the reality that there's no God, it's the reality that the God that exists is completely different than what you thought it was. And then um, it says not only no fear, but it's great joy, great joy for everybody, it's for all people, this great joy. So it's, it, it tells me that um, if our understanding of Jesus, he's like our gateway drug to understanding God, you know? And if, <laughs> If Jesus, if our understanding of Jesus is not something that does that produces joy, then we're missing we're missing something in the message, and it's worth rethinking. Uh, rather than just saying, "Well, look, I've got my Bible all figured out, so I know it's got to be this way," um, I would say, "Look at the evidence. Is the evidence producing joy?" Because um, the Pharisees thought they had their Bible all figured out, and they had it so figured out that when new evidence was presented to them in their experience. I mean, Jesus comes and says, well, I know you think the Messiah is going to be A, B, and C, but look, I'm performing miracles and raising people from the dead, and I'm caring for poor people, and, and, I, and the marginalized are being brought into the center of the circle. Mm. Um, isn't this a beautiful thing? Don't you believe this is from God? And they couldn't see what was right in front of them because they thought they already had the biblical version of God figured out. Mm. You know, like, we know what God is because we know we got our Bible figured out, and you don't fit. But the way, that's the way of the Pharisee. The way of Jesus is actually open up your eyes to the beauty that is around you and that's happening right here. Mm. And, and, and that should lead you to joy. Then you can go back to the Bible and rethink what you thought you already had figured out. Um, it's the same way that the early church made decisions that took them beyond just the letter of the law of Scripture. Like Acts 15, there's this story of what's called the Jerusalem Council, where the church, the early church has to make a massive decision about new converts who are Gentile. Do they have to first convert to Judaism in order to follow Jesus as the Jewish Messiah? Or can Gentiles just follow Jesus and not have to obey the law of Moses? What do we do with the Old Testament now that the New Testament is here? And it's this massive decision. And they don't have a Bible study to figure out the answer. <laughs> they look at the evidence and they say, well, you know what? Gentiles are coming to faith. The Holy Spirit's falling on them. Good things are happening. Mm. So this is beautiful. Yeah. And then they quote scripture to support what they've seen. But they didn't start with just trying to fit what they've seen into scripture. They actually allow their experience of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's doing to influence how they then go and look at scripture. I mean, that's massive. Mm. Um, so... I'll say one last thing in riffing on this is that, that what the Bible tells us, and it, 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 does, it does tell us really clearly in the New Testament that, that what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives, it's not a secret. It's not like the, like the Bible or Jesus said, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to turn you into a whole new person, but we don't know what that's going to look like. Hmm. It actually tells us, it gives us this thing called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And, and so what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and wants to do in me is actually, it's, it, it, God plays his hand. He shows us. He says, you're going to be you still, but you're going to be you who is more loving, love, joy, more joyful, and with more peace and patience and kindness and goodness and, and, and faithfulness and gentleness mm -hmm. and self-control. I mean, I think 
oh, okay, if I could be me, but on that drug, that's what I want, you know? (laughs) And and so so I've I've talked to people who have said, um, well, how do I know which church is best or which theology is best or or whether this writer or this podcast to tell the truth versus that one? And I say, well, if as far as I know, some of us, we're we're never going to be smart enough to figure out all of the theological nuance, but (laughs) what we can do is test everything according to the fruit of the Spirit. Mm. Say, is the, is this, the way this person is talking and what this person is presenting is the fruit of that more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and -hmm. self-control. Even if we're, we're we're often motivated by the fiery forceful self-confidence is really attractive to some people in, in leadership. He's a confident leader, Mm -hmm. but that's confidence is neither here nor there, but gentleness that's on the list. You know, kindness is on the list and joy. And so I think, well, if that's, if that's God's already tipped his hand and told us, this is where I'm at work and this is what I produce. So look for where that's getting produced. And that becomes a validation of truth. I love that you said that the whole message of the angel is prefaced by those words, do not be afraid. And I think that Mm. that's, I think that's really important for, for me and really for our listeners, the people who listen to this podcast, because maybe you can shift gears a little bit and actually Mm. talk to that listener who. Maybe they grew up with, let's call it the, the bad news version of the good news, you know, hellfire, mm. brimstone, clean up your act, believe the right things or get ready for misery and eternity. Because I know that some of our listeners, like who for them, Christmas can actually be very triggering because although as, mm. a, as a kid, they went to church for the Christmas pageant, the live nativity, all the different things, the underlying message they received from their church during the rest of the year was that God is angry unless they mm. keep in line, you know, they're not going to be part of the in-group so to speak. And I actually had this one guy reach out to me and tell me like, you know, I received a very mixed message in my church that, you know, you can't do anything to earn God's love on one hand, but on the other, you'd better do this and you better believe that and better stay away from those things or else you very well could lose God's love at the end of the day. So maybe as a pastor uh, who, from what I can observe from, you know, I follow you on Twitter and all the different places, you seem to have one of the biggest pastoral hearts that I've come across what would you say to that person today if they were in your congregation, they invited you out for coffee and they poured it out to you? What, what would you say to them? Oh, yeah. Thanks, man. I would, first of all, want to ask lots of questions and really understand their heart. And mm-hmm. when it was my turn to speak, then I, I think what I, might, um, what I might want to do is direct them towards whether it's this particular verse or just this principle, it comes out in lots of verses. Um, John, something that Jesus says in John 12, 45. In John 12, 45, Jesus says this, they're beautiful words. He says, whoever looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Mm. I love that. Mm. Whoever looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. So I, I, I would want to encourage someone to say that when you see a baby in the manger, that's not just God's rescue plan, that's God. When you see um, someone who is um, healing the leper with a touch, he's touching the untouchable. He's crossing all the protocols and even biblical boundaries in order to show love to those people who are on the margins, not just by bringing them a healing, but by the way he chooses to heal them, by touching them, saying, even before you're healed, man, I love you. And I'm not following the letter of the law. I'm following the way of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and he crosses those religious boundary markers in order to display love and pull people in. That's not just God's rescue plan. That's God. Mm-hmm. And when you see him on the cross, forgiving people, you know, breathing forgiveness, even for his perpetrators, that's not again, just God's rescue plan. That's God. I think sometimes in Christian circles, we, 
we talk about God and Jesus so separately that it, yeah, Jesus is sent by God and mm. he is God's rescue plan. And, and, but, but we're still left with such sometimes an angry version of God that we think, Oh, I get it. Yeah. God needed a rescue plan because he needed to rescue us from himself, right? right? From, yeah. from his a- anger, wrath and judgment. And that's all we think of when we think of God. So Jesus is like, the, the Mr. Hyde to God's Mr. Jekyll, right. you know, Dr. Hyde, Mr. Jekyll, right? It's just, um, or Mr. Doctor, I don't know which one was the Mr. Which one was the doctor, but you sure. get the point. Sure. Um, so I, I, I like, well, Jesus says, well, when you look at me, you're actually seeing what God is like. You're yeah. seeing, you're seeing who God is. So that makes me rethink all of my ideas of God. One other verse that comes to mind, same book of the Bible, John, it's John 1, 18, John 1, 18 where the apostle John says, uh, whoever, uh, no one has ever seen God at any time, um, except when you see Jesus. Mm. And he he takes that same thing that Jesus later says himself, and he kind of adds to it. uh, Otherwise you just don't see God. No one has ever seen God. And he knows that Adam and Eve like saw God, so to speak in the garden of Eden. He knows that Moses talked to God face to face. Ezekiel saw, saw a vision of God as a wheel within a wheel. There's all kinds of um, examples of people seeing God in some way in the Old Testament. But John says, yeah, yeah, I know that. But really, you haven't actually seen God. Mm-hmm. You saw a glimpse of God. You saw the back of God. You saw a shadow. The Apostle Paul calls it all shadows. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about a shadow is it has a, it has a general shape that you can discern some things. There's truth there. But you could also mix, mix up a lot. It doesn't have the detail. And um, you don't actually turn on the lights and see the thing causing the shadow, the actual substance, until you look at Jesus. Mm. And so everything we think we see in the Bible, everything we thought we saw about God in our church theology, we have to rethink in light of Jesus saying, no, no, I'm the one who shows you what God is like. And until you see me, you haven't seen God. Yeah. We often have this idea, like you said, that it's almost like we, it's like God and Jesus are two separate beings and God's like the angry dad that Jesus has That's to it. come and save us from. Yeah. And I think it's so, I think it's so powerful. So I think it's one of the reasons why I love Christmas so much is because like you said, like when you look at Jesus, you see the father and what an unlikely idea to have God in a baby, right? Like you, you would imagine yeah. God to be this, you know, this warrior, this really big, strong being, but here comes God as a frail human being. And like when you yeah. look at Jesus, that's how, that's that's God. I think that's so powerful. Yeah, and it's, it's philosophically mind blowing for me in that um, context is that you know the grand uh, largeness within which a story is told, and so the entire human story happens within the context of God. Mm. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Right? God started first. This is all everything that's ever happened. The whole planet, the universe happens within the context of God. So God is the grand context. But then God finds a way to in- enter the human context. And he, you know, he goes one better and he enters. So we're the context, or sorry, God's the context within which we live. But mm. then God enters our context within the human drama in a very particular way um, and makes himself vulnerable to the human context now, um, both in how he's, ra- he's born and raised and then eventually killed. Um, and even, you know, and even we talk about the great things like the huge violence done to Jesus, but even the, the sorrow of being continually misunderstood when he tries to teach love, they say, well, now you're just breaking the law. You just don't care about the Bible. And when he's trying to show people a better way, well, now you're just a friend of sinners. And when he's, when he's hanging out with women who are underprivileged and underrepresented, whose voices are not heard. And now he's just seen as scandalous and, 
and and to be constantly misunderstood i think is one of those great griefs that many people have i'm sure many people listening to this just know what it's like to want to be known and loved but but people misunderstand your intention your heart your struggle they judge and you just feel like i not only am i not loved i'm not even known nobody yeah. really gets me and jesus knows what that's like even when he's dying on the cross and he says, um, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the most painful thing he ever utters. He has this feeling and theologians debate that God the Father actually forsake him or not. I, I don't think so, but I think he has this emotional experience, psychological experience of feeling the abandonment, not just pain, but the, the kind of sense of being abandoned by God when we go through great struggle. He knows emotionally what that feels like. And as he cries out this more, most painful thing of his whole life, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It records the bystanders standing around the cross saying, oh, I think he's calling out for Elijah. Is that what he said? Well, I don't know. I think he said this. And it's like this total, man, the guy can't catch a break no matter what. People just misunderstand what he is trying to say and what he's trying to do. Mm. And I, I get that. And I think, oh, good. Jesus gets me in those times of pain. Yeah, that's so good. Now, that, that's actually a good segue into my next thing I wanted to ask you about. You talk in your book about the scandal of particularity. I think mm. that's how you say it, right? Particularity. Yeah, maybe you could, yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe you could talk to us about, about that. Like, how does that play into the angel's declaration of good news? Mm, yeah, okay. Well, sometimes, you know, we will say, why couldn't God, if God really loves all people, why couldn't he just appear to everybody at the mm. same time? Um, why doesn't he just appear to everybody now? And why only at that one time, in that one place, in that one form of Jesus? That seems really ineffective, inefficient. If I was God, I would be much more efficient, right? much more effective. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> And, and so, um, which is really interesting because God has always partnered with humanity. Like when he wants yeah. to feed Israel in, in, when they're wandering in the desert, he makes manna. So he gives them this gift of manna, but he says, now you still have to go out of your tents and go out and collect it That's every right. day. Yeah. Right. He could have yeah. just made manna appear in their mouths. They'd be like talking, <laughs> hey, Bob, how's your day? And then whoop, all of a sudden, oh, my mouth is full of manna. Um, or you could just make it appear in their stomachs or just supernaturally keep them nourished. But instead, he comes halfway, right? I'm going to give mm. you this gift of manna, but I want you now to come out and partner with me and pick it up and eat mm. it. And he's because we're made in his image and his likeness. He's always teasing his image out of us. You know, he's te teasing his likeness out of us and saying, come on now, meet me halfway. It's like with Adam naming the animals. There's no functional, real productive purpose in, in getting Adam to name the animals. But, but it's God saying, look, I made you my image. I've made you creative. Now I want you to start using your creativity. We're just <laughs> going to make up names together. Come on, man. Think of some crazy syllables. Put them together. We're going to name animals. It's like he's helping us take baby steps all the time toward our own creativity because yeah. we're made to be like God. Mm. Um, and so then God says, all right, I want everyone. I do want everyone to know about my love, but I want to speak the language of incarnation. In other words, I want to become one of them because I don't want it to be a pronouncement from the skies you know, there is a heavenly father who loves you. I want them to see it, to yeah. you know, taste it, to hear it. Huh. And so it's not just going to be words in a cloud. It's going to be, it's going to be something they see stamped into history, into human history. So he has two competing values. He wants everyone to know this. Yes. But the other value is he wants to stamp it into human history with like, a, you know, stamped at no erases. I love you. Hmm. And, and so in order to do that, he becomes human and the thing about humans 
is that humans don't live everywhere all the time throughout history. Uh, humans as a species do, but no one human has that ability. Humans are finite. Mm. And so for God to become a human, he takes on the qualities of humanity, which is he becomes, a, he becomes one gender and not another gender. He says, why did he become a man? Well, he had to become either male or female. It would have mm. left the question. I think, frankly, he became the gender of power at that time. Mm. And most times in history, he became the gender of power because so much of his message was about how to lay your power down. And I think if he had come as a woman and then said to his disciples, you need to wash each other's feet the way I'm washing your feet. Someone would look on a scene like that and say, well, yeah, woman, wash your feet. That's what women are supposed to do. Mm. He, but he comes as the gender of power in order to teach us how to lay our power down. Mm. Um, and he, he entered the Jewish story to fulfill the, the Jewish, the Hebrew scriptures. And he enters at a certain time in history. Um, the first century, not the 21st century. He enters a certain place on the planet. But this, the scandal of particularity means if God's really going to become human, really going to stamp his love into human history, he's going to have to become this and not that mm. on all these markers. This gender, not that. This time in history, not that time. This place in the planet and not every place on the planet. Mm. And so it means that ever since then, history has been our way of studying this very particular message of God, uh, how he loves us. We're looking back before that you looked forward in promise and after that you look backward through studying history um and that's the way god has chosen to really you know stamp his love into into our narrative yeah i love that and it makes me think too i think for for a lot of people like we said before the holidays are are sometimes heavy you know it brings up maybe traumatic childhood experiences or feelings of loneliness depression loss of a loved one and so i mean correct me if i'm wrong or feel free to take this deeper but I would think that the scandal of particularity can be almost like a, a bomb for those wounds because it means that, mm. that Jesus as a particular human, like you said, in a particular place, particular time of history, had his own circumstances, losses, traumas, probably lived through pandemics of sorts, cruel leaders, uh, loss of his friend Lazarus when he, when he wept, like he can understand. And maybe yeah. like that in and of itself, knowing that God or the divine, whatever, whatever you want to call it, Maybe that God, maybe that that can be good news for that person who's listening right now, who's in the midst of that that pain. Yeah, right on, right on. I'm I'm so with you. Mm. I think moments like this are what the word "amen" was invented for. Yes, say, amen. Bro. Amen to that. Preach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can I ask you a question about about the Bible? How that sort of ties into this? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because if God, and catch this now, if God says, I'm committed to the human enterprise. In yeah. other words, I'm going to reveal my love through humanity. Mm -hmm. That does mean he's going to do that at some point in history, because a human doesn't get to live at every point in history, at every place on the planet for all time. That's not how a human life works. Mm. So if he's going to become human, he's got to be in one place, one time. And if that's the case, so these are these competing values. God says, I'm going to manifest this love ultimately in one place, in mm. one time in history. But the other value is, I want all people in all places and all times to be aware of this. Hmm. That tells me God must be committed to preserving the message. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. those, those are two competing values that I think are true. God wants to stamp his love into history into human history. Hmm. And God wants all people everywhere to get that message. So if you put those two competing values together, it tells me God has revealed his love through Jesus and God has found a way to preserve that story. Mm. so that ever since we would have a way of hearing about it, reading mm. about it, telling the story to others and being reminded 
of how God stamped his love into human history. Mm-hmm. And that's why I just think logically I have, I have a good impulse in me that says, I want to trust that the basics of the story of Jesus have been preserved in the Bible, that God has found a way to keep the story accurate and trustworthy as much as it needs to be to see his love. Yeah, that's really good. For me, um, growing up, I was taught that the Bible is the inerrant, you know, infallible word of God. Mm-hmm. It's never to be questioned. And uh, every word is perfect. And every word and story is on the equal playing field. And and oftentimes, right. like I was reflecting on this as I was reading your book, I think you talk about this in not chapter two or three, something like that, but it's early on in the book. But for me, like growing up, it began to feel almost like the Bible was the gospel and the Bible yeah. was the good news. So maybe drill yeah. a little bit deeper down, like what, what happens? Yeah. What is, first of all, what does the Bible say about the word of God? Because you talk about that in your book, but what mm-hmm. happens to the good news of Jesus, in your opinion, when we've been talking about, like when we elevate the Bible to a place that maybe really only Jesus is meant to occupy? Yeah, so good. At this point, even the fact you're asking this question is making some listeners nervous. I was trying to skate. I was like, how do I want to phrase this? Let me make sure I phrase it in a way that's not going to scare But you know, some of of us need to be made nervous. Yes, (laughs) Um, right. Because, yeah, there's a, uh, we live, just to place ourselves in history, we live on this side of the Protestant Reformation. Mm. Something happened at the Protestant Reformation that was both healthy and unhealthy. On the healthy side, you know, the Catholic Church had gotten off the rails. It had lost its way. Catholic mm-hmm. historians will admit this. It was in an unhealthy place at that time. And uh, through the selling of indulgences and other things, Catholic Church was just one of the worst versions of itself. Mm-hmm. And so Protestants tried to correct that by saying, I mean, Protestants were Catholics, actually, who were trying to reform the Catholic Church, and it ended up starting a different movement altogether. But there were these early leaders who were saying, we need to repent, we need to reform the Catholic Church, and the way to do that is actually stop allowing the Pope and others to make up these these new beliefs that are abusing people and just stick to what the Bible teaches. So their corrective was to put the Bible back in the center of the Christian faith. Hmm. Um, and that's a step in a good direction. But if you just have the Bible in general at the center, well, you can use that Bible to justify just about anything. You hmm. can justify violence and judgmentalism and, um, and uh, prosperity theology. And so on the heels of the Protestant Reformation was this another corrective that is called the Radical Reformation, just happens a few years later. And so you have the Protestants saying, put the Bible in the center. And then you have the radicals in the Radical Reformation who say, well, hold on a second. You Protestants are putting the Bible in the center. And look at you. You're just as violent as the Catholics, for instance, using that as a case study. Mm -hmm. Catholics go to war in order to preach a gospel of love. Well, Protestants said, well, we'll go to war against the Catholics <laughs> to promote our gospel of love. Right. And what they realized is, well, you can put the Bible in the center, but you can still use it to justify war. So the radical reformers said, you not only have to put the Bible in the center, you have to make sure that Jesus is in the center of your Bible. Hmm. Um, and if you are not using the Bible to lead you to Jesus, because the Bible should function some, somehow like John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God, you know, there he is, but always pointing to Jesus. Hmm. Um, or functioning like the star of Bethlehem at the Christmas story that led the Magi to Jesus. But in the end, they don't then focus on the star anymore. It has its place. It has its role. It leads you to Jesus, but then you fall in love with Jesus. And that's, that's the role of the Bible in our lives. Otherwise, um, the, you can have a pretty violent and detached faith. And you can notice 
the, the danger signs of this potentially happening when people talk about the Bible the way we should talk about Jesus. Mm -hmm. They talk about the Bible as the Word of God, except in the Bible, most of the time the Word of God is used. It means just the message that God has for you, whatever mm -hmm. message He has for you. Like the way I might say to you, hey, Glenn, can I have a word with you? Mm -hmm. The Word is whatever message I have. I want to talk to you about it. And so God's Word to us in, in the New Covenant is the Gospel, which is the message of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, so we'll talk about the Bible as the Word of God, but the Bible says when the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, this is Jesus. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll use language like, I follow the Bible. Whereas in the Bible, we learn that Jesus <laughs> says, follow me. Right. I, I'm a person. You follow a person. You don't follow books. You follow yeah. a, a person. And Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say follow the Bible. Um, and people say, well, I, I really want to be biblical. Well, that's interesting because in the Bible, Jesus right. says, um, you go, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Mm. But my teachings, in John 8, he says, if you follow my teachings, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's always Jesus at the center. It doesn't mean we throw out the rest of the Bible, but it means we read the whole Bible with Jesus in mind, leading yeah. us towards Jesus. That changes. That's a game changer. That will lead to more of that fruit of the Spirit stuff we talked about earlier, more love and joy and mm. peace and kindness. And um, otherwise, people just use the Bible to s substantiate almost anything that they want. Yeah, I think for me, like one, one of my big realizations was since I kind of started this, this deconstruction journey, when I first started, I put my Bible away for like probably mm. six months just because I felt mm. like I couldn't read it attached from yeah. so much of the baggage I had. And so yeah. when I came back, I realized that for a large part of my, of my life, I had been reading like the stories of Jesus through the lens of the rest of the Bible. It was almost mm. like the prophets and Paul and all mm. these other things were like, they're like the, the major leagues and Jesus was kind of like the kid stuff. And when I yeah. picked up my Bible again, I started to just read the Gospels. And mm -hmm. then I read them again and again and again. And then I started to read the rest of the Bible. And I realized like a significant shift that took place for me was instead of reading Jesus through the lens of the Bible, I was reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And mm -hmm. that was like a complete mm -hmm. game changer for me when I did that. Right on, right on. And I know that there are those conservative Christians who will say, well, hold on, Glenn, hold on, Brexy. Um, <laughs> how are you going to know about Jesus aside from the Bible? as right. though they have just said something that is a, a, a real gotcha moment. And I, I was just say, yeah, I get that. But um, we're, we're saying go to the Bible, but go to the Bible with a different attitude to yes. learn about Jesus. Because right. in the Bible, it teaches you that. Jesus says in John 5, and again, we're quoting the Bible here, but in the Bible, the Bible itself says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. You know, um, yeah. What Jesus says in John 5 to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures, because you think that by them you'll have eternal life, but you, you fail to come to me. You fail to see that the scriptures are all pointing to me. So the Pharisees loved the Bible, learned the Bible, and followed the Bible. And Jesus said, I know, and that's your problem. Right. <laughs> right? You're all about yeah. the Bible. Right. But until you let the Bible be, you take that last step in the journey, which is to step through the Bible to follow Jesus, you're doing it wrong, says Jesus. And he has this line just before this. That's John 5, 39, 40. But just before that, John 5, 37, 38. He says, um, you, here's your problem. You do not have the word of God dwelling in you. Mm. Now, this is interesting because the word of God, if we think that's the Bible, nobody knew the Bible better than the Pharisees. Mm. I mean, they knew what Bible existed then, the Old Testament. They had it memorized. And he says, yeah, but your problem is you don't have the word of God in you. Oh. 
well, how, I'm sure they must have thought, well, how can that be? Because we know we have it memorized. But the, he's saying, well, just knowing the Bible is not the word of God. It is actually what is God trying to say to you through the Bible? Mm. And that's always going to be about Jesus. Yeah, it's like they knew their Bible so well, but yet God mm. was standing right in front of them and they couldn't see him. Yeah, that's it. They missed the word of God. Yeah, so good. So last question for you, maybe, maybe kind of a, a request, but can you end by taking us through, you talk about a mental experiment in a reunion, uh, that one that was inspired by A.W. Tozer that you sometimes take uh, large groups of people through maybe pre-COVID days when you were doing maybe different uh, larger gatherings. But it's in chapter three, because I think yeah. that like after reading that, I think that for people listening today during this holiday season, maybe they're feeling alone, lost, unworthy, insignificant. I think that kind of the point of this mental experiment could be a real gift for them. Mm, okay. All right. Yeah. Let's do it together. Yeah. So what I invite everyone to do then, we're going to just take a couple of minutes mm-hmm. is to, um, if you're in a position where you can close your eyes and listen to my voice, great. If you're driving and doing whatever, <laughs> keep, we'll just, your eyes open. To, yeah, keep your eyes open. That's right. But we do want you to use your imagination at this point, just for the next couple of minutes, rather than just listen to me describe things. I want you to actually picture what you can the sights, the sounds, even the feelings that it generates, if, if anything. Hmm. Um, and this is what we want to do for a couple of minutes is just go backwards in time. And we're going to go all the way back to the pre-everything to where there's just God. But first, we want to exercise our imagination to get there. Hmm. So I want you to just imagine yourself just as an observer. You're just an observer of the world around you right now. Uh, you're not engaged with it. You are just observing. And now time begins to flow backward picture whether it's the birds flying backwards or the cars driving backwards things are moving backwards and they start to accelerate moving backward in in a faster and faster pace and now things that exist now are ceasing to exist buildings are being deconstructed rather than constructed and um, cities are starting to become more old-fashioned and nature's going backwards people who exist now don't exist anymore There's no pain involved. This is just, we're just observing history, moving backward. Um, Continents, civilizations, everything's moving backward. Now you go before pre-humanity and there's just nature. And then pre-nature and there's just cosmos. And now you move even further backward in time, either pre-cosmos. And all you have is... Well, what? What do you have? Hmm. You're now pre-Big Bang. Hmm. Think for a moment. Where has your imagination taken you? What do you sense? What do you see? What do you hear? Hmm. Is, Is there a certain feeling associated with being before all things? Is there something you see, something you feel, something you hear? Um, if Jesus is real... If his message is real, let me tell you what what we might anticipate being true if we were able to do this. Um, What would we feel, first of all? Some people might say, well, I just feel um, a kind of um, uh, lostness in the vastness of space, but but there is no space. Space doesn't exist. Everything is here and everything is now. Um, Some people might say, well, I feel alone in the dark. Well, there, there's, if what Jesus says is true, there's no darkness because God is light. And so correct your mental image. You're actually just surrounded by light. Um, 
and how do you feel? Do you feel, some people say, oh, I feel anxiety, but you're surrounded by a light that is pure love. That's the DNA of the divine. That's what the entire universe was born out of. And so you can say, I'm, I am surrounded by love, um, love that is light. And then I say, do you hear anything? Do you hear anything? Hmm. Is it, you can't say it's the sound of the wind blowing through the trees. Those mm-hmm. don't exist. There's a, they say, well, things are silent in space, but we're not actually in space. Mm. We're just here and now surrounded by light and love. And what I would like to suggest, even though many of us, our imaginations don't go to what we hear, what you might hear, if this were true, would be conversation. Mm. You would hear warmth and welcome in the tones of voices. You would hear some joy and laughter, and you would know I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a place like a family dinner or a party or a, a hangout with friends where mm. you just sense there's a lot of love here. Um, it's passing back and forth because the Bible says that God is somehow relationship in his own heart, that the DNA of the divine is love and love is a relational concept. So we were born out of relationship. It's the most fundamental reality of the universe. Um, Dallas Willard was, uh, was one asked, he's a philosopher who's now passed on, but he was once asked what he thought God was doing before God created the world. And he, he answered in an answer that has poor grammar in order to make, to present good theology. His answer was, what was God doing before he created the world? He was enjoying themselves. He was enjoying themselves. And so I just want to invite everyone to, when you clear away all that, we call creation or existence or history the most fundamental reality of the universe is the god who is joy the god who is love who is relational and so he wants us to participate in that relationship and our relationships are the most important thing um and and so christmas then becomes that time where we say hey that cosmic reality of pure joyful love entered the human story and i want to be mentored by that you know i want to draw closer to that so good. You say in your book, the last, uh, the first sentence of the last paragraph of that section, you say, this is our origin. And I love that. That's where we all mm-hmm. come from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This has been, uh, man, it's been amazing, but we're just about out of time. And you have a meeting soon. I've got a clock back in from, yeah. from lunch, but thank you for making time for me and our listeners. I've heard from people that you, you tend to rock the boats of people in the church just because you love Jesus so much and you take him at his word. And I think that Mm. uh, even for someone like me who is deconstructing, reconstructing, asking all sorts of questions, that speaks volumes. So uh, thank you for Mm. your work. Um, And again, for taking time to talk to me. Hey, Glenn, you got a good thing going on. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Oh, thank you. And before you go, uh, where can people find you online to connect with you? Yeah, sure. If they want my books, I mean, go to Amazon. And if you type in my name, Bruxy Cavey, how many of me can there be? You're <laughs> going to find both of my books, Reunion, The Good News of Jesus for Seeker Saints and Sinners, and also The End of Religion, which does a deeper dive specifically into some of the more controversial aspects of Jesus' life. Um, and uh, the, the new uh, updated revised edition of The End of Religion is just coming out. So this is a good time to look into that as well. So that's, you can find my books on Amazon. If you want to read my blog or just get to know more about me, you can go to brexy.com. And if you want to learn more about our church or hear like Sunday teachings or anything like that, our church is called The Meeting House. And for that, you just go to themeetinghouse.com. Awesome. Well, Brexy, I'll put all of that in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for making time. 
All right, all the best, my friend. Peace, bud. Parents were taught